Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. My conversation with Nancy Slonum Maroney is up there now. <laughs> Boy, it was such a great conversation, and I just let we, that the story she tells about how she really came to writing and publishing and her workshop, put it up there. It's a great long story she tells. I highly recommend. If you haven't listened to it, go check it out. It's all over at authormagazine.org. And we're funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They've been supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Planning our yearly conference in September. Plan to be in uh, person. And uh, I think hopefully that's still going to happen. I'll be teaching there. I hope to see you there. It's now, nah, you know, it's plenty of room. Sign up now at uh, PNWA. Dot org. So today's guest, great, uh, Susan Cushman. She's got a new book out. Uh, one of the reasons I like talking to her is that she's an essayist like Anne. Well, she's gotten a collection of essays out now that form a kind of memoir. And I write personal essays, and so we love talking about that. But she's also someone who was always interested in writing, but had to set it aside or chose to set it aside to raise children and have a family and do all the things we do, but came back to it later and came back to it with verve. And since, I think, 2017, she's had a bunch of books published. So, you know, and essays and stories. So it's never too late, people. No, it is not. So Susan Cushman is the author of five books and the editor of three. Right. All since about 2017. Uh, the memoirs Pilgrim Interrupted and Tangles and Plaques. Uh, the novels John and Mary Margaret and Cherry Bomb. Uh, the short story collection Friends of the Library. And the anthologies The Pulpwood Queen Celebrate 20 Years, Southern Writers on Writing, and A Second Blooming Becoming the Women We Are Meant to Be. She has also published uh, essays in four anthologies and numerous journals and magazines, a frequent speaker and panelist in, at literary festivals and conferences. She has also taught a numerous writing workshop. She, her writing embraces her southern roots, her spiritual journey from the Presbyterian faith of her childhood to her conversion to Orthodox Christianity and her struggles with various mental health issues. And we talked about it all, and I'm glad I get to share it with you now. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the show, Susan. How are you doing? Hi, Bill. I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Uh, we're recording this exactly a week before this show will drop, which happens to be the same day I just discovered as your pub date for Pilgrim Interrupted. Wow. So how are you feeling? You've done a, this is not your first rodeo, but you know, it's always kind of exciting. How are you feeling a week out? I'm feeling great. I mean, it's my eighth book, but you know, I have three children and I, I love them all the same. I mean, I wasn't less excited with the third. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, of course, I always feel like with books, it's a little different than children in that your favorite is always the one that's just, I mean, how can you not be the most interested in the one you've just published, you know? For, for right now it is. It's, yeah. well, my very first novel, Cherry Bomb, Still has a place in my heart, but we can talk about oh, that later. Of, of course. All right. Well, let's go back. Let's go back. Uh, you said this is book eight. These are books you've either written or edited, right? right. Okay. Right. And um, so writing, and you've had a you've had a very interesting life. 
a lot of stuff, a lot of journeys, a lot of ups and downs. Uh, was writing always a part of that? Always. I mean, if you want to go back to the shoebox that my mother kept of letters I wrote my grandmother when I was ages five to 19. Wow. So that's a collection. I've got junior high literary journal. I've got high school newspaper staff. So I always know I wanted to write. Always. You knew that was part of the, and what did your family think about that? Were they like, oh my God, poverty is in her future. Like, what did they think about that? <laughs> you mean my parents or my husband? Yeah, you know, your family, because it's always, no, no writer, I can count on maybe one hand, the number of writers whose parents were writers. It's so rare. Exactly. Well, my parents were not. But in the 60s, when I fell in love and got married young, my parents were just happy that I had found a wonderful person to marry. And right. that I, did, I did a bit of college. And at that point, in 1970, when I got married, 52 right. years ago, um, I didn't know that I was going to publish books. You know, I, I needed to work to put my husband through school. I needed to raise three kids. So I took a few decades before I dove back into this. Okay, so you were always interested in writing, but 1970, you're just sort of trying to just do the life adult thing. Right. Right. And that really just consumes you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, somebody needed to buy groceries and pay rent. Oh, hey, you know, everybody, <laughs> you know, everybody comes at it different, but you even, so you've been writing. And, and when you were, so you just didn't know, you're like, this is, I'm doing the wife and mother thing. Like right now, this is going to do, even though feminism is raging around you, it's 1970. It's I happening. I know. But and I have friends who, are, who had it all right. or were doing it all. And I could not. It's like I was, I was once, once we, we adopted three children. Wow. And once I became a soccer mom, <laughs> I was a super mom. It was like, right. that was my focus. You for see, a I, I always feel that there's a certain brand of, of woman who takes on parenting as if it's a corporate job. Not, not say this, what you did, but you bring the same energy. Like, look, absolutely. I, I could have worked, so I'm going to do this the same way. Exactly. I'm going I, all in. That was what I did. And my husband was super busy with his work. So I didn't want both of us to be totally gone on careers. When we had adopted three children, you know, who right. were there, we were their second sets of parents, right. you know. So I just decided, you know what? I'm going to put that off till later. I'm going to do this especially the soccer mom stuff, which that, I really just driving them around, doing it, being there. All right. But at some point kids go to school, right? Uh, you don't have to, I, I still remember the first day we had two kids and the second kid was off at some preschool. I was like, Oh my God, there isn't a child in the house. I, I have forgotten what I said, Jen, let's go do something without them. It's so, so did the writing start just when you had a little bit of free time or when did it kick in? How long did it take? Well, yeah, when I had a little bit of free time, when they were all actually in school, I did yeah. some freelance writing. I did some newsletters, some work for okay. a corporate company, yeah. just freelance. But I didn't think I had the focus to write books. Yeah. You know, when I had to pick kids up at three and then we had soccer and then we had meals and we had groceries. Right. I just didn't feel like I could do both. But I kept my finger in it with a little bit of freelance during those years. And But it wasn't really, I mean, not to denigrate it, but it's not what I would call creative writing. It's more work for hire type stuff exactly yeah but it keeps you you know connected to language and right. writing sentences and thinking right. like that it's all part of it so talk to me about when it really starts up again for you how does that happen 
2001. So my youngest, wow. my, okay. my youngest of three left for college. And I thought, now it's my time, but you should never say that out loud because <laughs> this is what happened. I got cancer. My oldest son left for Iraq in the army. 9-11 happened. So it was a hell of a year for me to say, okay, I can relax now with my mother duties and become the writer I always wanted to be and, <laughs> because all hell was breaking loose. And so, but, but you said, okay, I'm going to write, but then you get cancer and do you, but, and despite all that, 9-11 and your son going off to war, you wrote anyway, despite yeah, that? I, yeah, a little bit. You know what I did first? I painted. As hmm. you can see, this sign behind me, you can't yeah. on the podcast. It's lovely. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm an Orthodox, uh, I'm a convert to Orthodox Christianity and I painted icons and I went to, I went on pilgrimages to monasteries and I learned to write icons and I did that kind of journey for a few years before I said, Hey, you know what? I really just want to write. So it was okay. around 2006 when I decided to, I'm, I'm done with icon writing. I still love them. And it's now it's time to write. So that was in about 2006. So where do you start? What do you start with? Yeah, I, I discovered a wonderful writing workshop in Oxford, Mississippi, where I went to school. Uh, at Oxford, Ole Mississippi. Yes. Home of the one and only. Well, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and I went right. to school at Ole Miss in the 60s, and um, they have a wonderful summer writing workshop called the Yakna Batalfa. Of course. Workshop. Of course, that's the, the fictional um, county where Faulkner wrote, you know, set his novels. Yeah. So I started going, and I went seven summers in a row, and they're led by MFA students and faculty, and I had um, chapters of my works in progress um, critiqued, and I had I learned a lot about writing. I didn't ever go for the M the real MFA. So this was kind of like a way to get an Emmy mini. Yeah, MFA. Sure. So I started doing that and I started with memoir fi and fiction primarily, but mostly memoir at first. Yeah, and, and what, what, do you, what did you really need to learn? What was the thing that was, you felt the biggest sort of hole in your understanding of storytelling and that's a Creative really writing. good question because there was so much to learn, but sure. I think, I think it's structure. You know, you've got this narrative arc mm -hmm. and every editor I've ever had says that my arc sinks in the middle. You've Yours got... and everybody's Susan, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to learn to pump up the action and, and have something exciting and dramatic happen in the middle too. So there's, so it's not just going, Meow. all right. Yeah. I got a question for you then. I've never asked anybody this. Let's let's dive into this. Let's put our thinking cap. Why? What is it with the middle that so many writers that's where it sags? Why what's your what's your theory on that game since you've had to overcome it? Yeah. My theory is just really hard to hold that arc, to hold the writer's attention. Now, I've written a short story collection, Friends of the Library. So easy to write 20 or 25 pages with that arc. So right. easy. Write 300 plus pages and keep that going. It's just hard. Maybe, you know, there are writers more gifted than me that don't find it mm, difficult. No, that's, I think, think you've got to have some new conflict. Like when I write a book, I outline. I used to. I've, I've become a different kind of writer. Yeah. I used to outline the whole book to start with. So I knew what was going to happen when I outlined each chapter. But it didn't occur to me that people were going to get bored in the middle unless some more conflict happened. Yeah. Unless some more action happened. Yeah, the problem's got to get worse. 
The problem has to get worse. It has to. And the editors, I've had some really good editors along the way who helped me learn that. So that's good. Now, and now you got it. You're never going to write a book where this middle sags ever again. No, I'll just always have good editors. (laughs) All right. Well, that's a good, that's a good solution as well. All right. So fiction, nonfiction, but let's talk about Pilgrim Interrupted, which uh, I love. I mean, I love the idea of the um, memoirist essay collection poetry. I mean, it's sort of a memoir, but I think essay, I think the essay is like a, is to the, memoir what we call memoir what the short story is the novel i do think it's the same sort of relationship don't you yeah absolutely yeah and in fact you say as much so and it's interesting you start this particular book off with a kind of history of the essay you sort of give us a sort of background so talk to us about this book how it came to be and what you're doing in it Sure. Well, I kind of, I probably have ADD because I always have more than one book going on at a time. Okay. My first three books were all published in 2017. Wow. Oh, yeah, exactly. Good year. One one more in 2018, two more in 2019. So I've had eight published, eight books published in five years because I always have to have a project going on or I get bored really, really easily. I hear you. I I was between projects, as I always am, and I was trying to start a new novel. After my novel, Johnny Mary Margaret, came out last year, I was trying to write a new novel, and I just couldn't come up with something that I really loved, and I kept trying and trying and trying, because if I don't love it, my readers are definitely not going to love it. Nope. So I thought, what can I do? And I realized that I had written and published tons of essays, personal, spiritual, Um, mental health, family oriented, that all put together would read a bit like a memoir, but it would be a collection. Mm -hmm. So I just started organizing them into a collection. And I was really liking the shape it was taking with six different sections and the way it, it, it took shape like a memoir, but it was a collection. And so I just put it together. I found a small publisher in Mississippi again, <laughs> love the idea and being, it comes out next, next Tuesday, June 7th. So did you, was, so is this a completely, it's an, it's a complete compilation. In other words, when you put this book together, you didn't say, all right, I need 10 new essays or was it all just cobbled to nothing wrong with that? I have a collection like that myself. Uh, well, actually that's true. I wrote the introductory essay. I did write one, but, right. but the rest, it was just cobbled together. So did you just, was it all pulled or did you say, I've been inspired by my own work and I'm going to add three or four more in there? You know, I actually had three or four that had not been published. Oh, nice. So they're in there. The only thing new I actually wrote was the introduction. Uh, you know, otherwise the work was just organizing, doing the sections, doing some quotes, you know, deciding the order. And then I decided to pull some excerpts from previously published books like, um, couple of my novels my short story collection and one of my memoirs just to kind of fit the themes as we went through and poetry too oh and I'd only ever had one poem published I'm not really a poet but occasionally a poet will a poem will hit me and it really if when it really fit into one of the sections I thought why not let's make this a really mixed genre book you know publishers will love that Uh, (laughs) It took a minute. It took a minute to find a publisher. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> uh, well, so the personal essay, that's really my thing. That's really where I dwell most of the time. Uh, I love it. Uh, I teach it. Uh, I have found in teaching, do you teach memoir or personal essay ever? 
Um, only just in a workshop occasionally. Right. Well, I'm, that's kind of where I do it. Yeah. In yeah, workshops. Yeah. I found the thing the students have the most trouble with are the endings that that's where they often don't deliver the goods where they have the most, I think finding the courage to, um, to really give, I think, in fact, you and I contact each other because you'd read a piece of mine in yeah. writer's digest. And I think right. I talk about it some in there. Um, talk to me about, I have my own theories about the ending. I, I didn't even understand that that was a strength of mine. Uh, and that was part of how I found success. I understood on some intuitive level how to end things. Right, right. Talk to me about endings. I do think it's critical with the essay. They don't just sort of say, okay, well, anyway, I'll see you next time. <laughs> you know, right. It has to be a, a spot. So talk to me about that. Well, you know, if you're writing for Hallmark, it's got to have a happy ending. Right. Uh, if you're writing on psychology, self-help, you want it to at least have a hopeful ending, yeah. but not a tied up in a neat bow ending because mm -hmm. there are a lot of issues that can't be easily and quickly resolved. And yeah. so over the writing of these eight books, I think the one thing I've thought about with endings is to not ever end up with that bright bow at the end, to always right. have some hope, some healing, but not everything just all neatly uh, right. cleaned up in the package because life isn't like that. You know, I have, I have an active blog, and especially for a decade before I started publishing books, I had a lot of followers because I would write regularly. I would write Mental Health Mondays, Writing on Wednesday, Faith on Friday, a lot of followers. And I did a lot of confessional writing, you know, really writing about issues in my life and in other people's lives and, and on how I was dealing with it. And they weren't all neat answers. Right. So I feel like endings need to give some satisfaction to the reader but they're not necessarily all neat and cleaned up. Right. Why? I mean, um, are you, you, you mentioned that, is it, do you feel within you a temptation to make them neat? The mom who wants to take, see her kids do well. I would say with fiction writers, it's like you create these characters you love and then you put them through hell. You, you would never wish on your children, what you, what you put your own characters through. Right, right. And so are you sometimes feel you a, a desire to tie it up with a bow that you have to resist or does it come naturally to kind of leave it open a bit more? I think for the most part, it comes naturally. Like I'm thinking about what I like to read and mm. what I like to watch as far as TV and movies. I like serious drama. That's a little bit dark. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always end well. Um, but I will say, I, I diverged greatly with my short story collection, Friends of the Library, which I would not be sad if Hallmark wanted to pick that up uh -huh. <laughs> because each of those 10 stories deals with a serious issue. The characters have Alzheimer's and um, alcoholism and cancer and domestic abuse and sexual abuse, and each one ends well. Mm -hmm. And I got compliments and complaints. In, right. in my reviews on Amazon and Goodreads about that. And people would say, this is too much like Hallmark. Everything ends happy. The next person would say, it's so nice to have something in happy. You know, so because readers don't all want the same thing. New. Well, I think happy endings are tricky for some people. What they call happy endings that don't end. It's it, happy isn't even necessarily the right word, but there's a yeah. kind of like, there's a, there's a kind of something is, is finished. Someone understand something comes to a conclusion. I think it's people want to live that way would right. like but I think that if they don't totally buy the quote happy ending they're pissed you know it's like you see life's just crap I just people tried to fool us I think it's I think it's harder to write those than to write ones that kind of leave you down yeah. a little bit yeah I, I think right. 
you know. Well, my first novel, Cherry Bomb, um, had a fairly good ending, but I wasn't happy with it, so I wrote an epilogue that oh. happened five years later because I felt like my readers, I wasn't going to write a sequel. And I felt like my readers were going to go, well, but wait, but what happens here? But what happens to this person? And I didn't want to leave them hanging too much. Right. So I, think I solved my ending issue by writing an epilogue, which is one way to do it. Right. And so as you were putting this thing together, Pilgrim interrupted, big collection. And anyway, it covers how many years again? Oh, golly. Um, Ten? Most of my <laughs> life. But oh, okay. no, no, it really, the, no, the, the um, published pieces in it cover about a decade. But you're dealing with your whole life. I mean, you're writing about your life. Yes. Your whole life is your canvas, is your exactly. Um, and you obviously had to read them all again, right? Oh, yeah. Back through and go through it. Um, what, what did you, did anything change or what did you learn or what occurred to you as you were rereading it other than like, I want to collect these? Was there anything that you discovered or learned or changed as you were putting this together? Yeah, there really was. The, the theme that I, the, the thread that I felt that made me want to put it together was that I've always been looking for healing, always been looking for healing right. in one right. way or another, you know, um, having been um, sexually abused by my grandfather when I was five, others in my early 20s, my mother's verbal emotional abuse, my eating disorders, struggles with addiction. I mean, I'm 71 now, and those things are still not all okay. Right. And I'm not sure they ever will be. But I thought, you know, I love to read memoirs where everything's not completely okay, but where right. I can relate to the person's struggle. And I go, oh, yeah, they get that. Just for someone to, it's, it's the universal and the personal. For someone to get that. You know, I feel like readers, it, it helps me. So I thought, what would I want to read? You know, as I was picking which things to put in here, and I would, I would not choose some, I'd go, no. I wouldn't want to read that again. Yes, I would want to read that again. You know. Oh, well, that's great. And so you must be pleased with with the book. Oh yeah. You, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, are you going to, you know, and listeners, Susan, a, a very ambitious woman. She approached me. She said, "Hey, let's do it." So you know how to do a little marketing, a little marketing, a little promotion. You're doing your best. Like, how have you got any kind of a plan? It's tough. Small presses. COVID's still kind of happening. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so what's your plan with that? Yeah, well, every plan has been different. You know, um, I don't have an agent. Uh, and for John and Mary Margaret, my novel from a year ago, I hired a publicist and two other marketing professionals because it was a novel that was timely. Yeah. Uh, it dealt with civil rights issues. It dealt with a biracial relationship on the Ole Miss campus in the 60s. And I just felt like it had a big chance of getting out there in a bigger way mm -hmm. uh, because if you don't have an agent you're not going to get published with harper collins or one of the big five and so you're going to be with small presses so i thought i'm gonna throw some money at that and see if that helps and i got some events i couldn't have gotten otherwise Great. some interviews i couldn't have gotten otherwise but i've always been a hard worker on my own marketing oh, yeah. and for this book because it's a spiritual memoir it's a bit different i'm not planning as large a book tour uh to bookstores i'm going to stumble bookstore surely but I'm also pitching it to churches religious groups there's a lot of art in it I'm speaking to the Memphis Brooks Art Museum League in the fall so I'm finding some different ways I actually like marketing you know some you, authors see, ah now they see no I'm writing a book about marketing now and they are they exist these people exist and right. why do you like it 
Talk, talk to our <laughs> listeners who most of them do not like it. Well, probably because I did it before I was really a writer. Uh, you know, I, I did some marketing. I did some communications. I did some newsletters. I did some sales. I sold advertising for the high school newsletter. You know, <laughs> I would set up the ad shoots and the photographer would come. And I just thought it was fun. And I, I just enjoy that part of it. I enjoy sending out uh, query letters to to places to possibly speak, whether it's book festivals or bookstores. I love networking. And um, I think that's a blessing because like you said, I mean, like we said, a lot of authors don't like that. No, no, no. They, they, I would I teach, I teach a class called Fearless Marketing. I yes. used to call it marketing for authors who hate to market. <laughs> it was well attended. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, oh, all right. So now, so are, are you currently, you said you always got to have a project. Do you have a project now? You got something you're working? You don't tell me about it, but are you working away on something? You know, it's so funny. I actually have a book deal for a book to come out a year from June. Oh, okay. Um, so it's like every year I've got something coming out and it's going to be another anthology that I put together. And it's called um, All Night, All Day, Life, Death and Angels. And it's about um, angels and end of life experiences and near death experiences. And it has nice. essays by about 25 authors some really good top name authors. And um, so it's, uh, I've already got a publishing deal for that for next June. So that gives me a little breathing time because I keep being pulled back to write another novel. Yeah. But writing a novel is harder than everything else. To me, uh, organizing an anthology is fun and easy. Short stories are pretty quick. Memoir just comes from what you've lived. Uh, but writing a novel takes an incredible amount of imagination and and stick with itness. Yeah. Chair thing. I don't know if I'll do it again or not, but now I've got some breathing space. So I'm thinking about it again. See, I like your attitude, Susan, that you're not forcing anything. You're just doing what I'm a big proponent of doing what comes easiest and most natural and not making yourself do anything if you don't, if it doesn't feel right at that moment. Right. Exactly. All right. So the book is Pilgrim Interrupted. And for our listeners, it, it yep, there it is. She's showing it to me. There it is. It's a nice cover and it drops today. So it'll be available for where all fine books are sold. And um, if they want to learn more about you, uh, it's where do they go? Is it www.susancushman.com. Susan and Cushman. within my website, there are my events, there's a blog, there's, you know, whatever you need to know. Yeah, it's all there, people. It's a good website. Fact. And Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Oh, good. She's all over the place. She's got, she's all dialed in. That's good. All right. Not quite done with you, Susan. I got one more question. What I want you to do is finish this sentence. If writing all the different kinds of writing you've done all the way back to high school, even the letters to your grandma, if writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Wow. Um, this is not going to sound very original because I'm sure somebody better than me said it, but I do write to help me understand myself and the world, I do that first. And then I decide whether or not what I've written should be published and shared. But I write first to help me figure out what's going on in my own heart and soul and in the world. I like that answer. It's a good answer. There are no wrong answers. There's no unoriginal answers. That's just the answer that's right for you. Thank you, Susan. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate it.
Yeah, we write to learn what we know, to discover what we know. I think it's, it's really true. It's sort of sneakily profound in its own way. You think you know what you know, but there's something about expressing it, putting it down so someone else could understand it, maybe, that helps you understand it. I don't totally know why it works that way, but believe me, it does. Okay, well, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. I want to thank my pro- my uh, producer, R.J. Jeffries, as always. Thank you, my friend. And to all of you out there, well, go find something you love to do and then do it. have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.